Well, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 150, or you could turn to Proverbs chapter 1 and just go back one page. Psalm 150 is at the very end of the Psalter, and it is, it is really rather short, so it won't take us long to read, and so we shall. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. And if you missed it, praise the Lord. This is the Word of God. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, man, I messed that up. This is the Word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. You know, even professional singers keep the national anthem in front of them when they sing it. No matter how familiar you are, you can still mess it up. Well, welcome then to this sermon on the 150th Psalm. It will serve as the conclusion of our series on the Psalter. This is indeed the climax of the whole Psalter. It's the place to where the whole songbook of God has been building. It is very similar uh, in the way it's constructed and in the things it says to Psalm 149, the one right before it. We're not going to be spending uh, time in 149 this morning. I just want to point out that 149 and 150 together are meant to be these kind of resounding echoes of this closing hallelujah. In fact, they are so similar that in John Calvin's commentary on the Psalms, he got to 150 and just wrote, read the, uh, read the previous one. <laughs> so that's th- those are their similarities. Uh, and it begins and ends with hallelujah in the Hebrew. Praise, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. So hallelujah is uh, Hebrew for, for praise Yahweh. And so the Psalter starts, if you remember, way back when we started this series, we started with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And I, I told you that then that the Psalter begins with Psalm 1, know the path of life, right? So blessed is the man who walks in the ways of the Lord and so on. Psalm 2, love the Son of God. It's a messianic psalm, right? So you have know the path of life, love the Son of God, love the the Messiah, God's Son, and just about every other psalm could fit under one of those headings, okay? Almost the entire rest of the Psalter can be traced back to these two. And as you move through the last portion, the last chapter, if you like, of the songbook of God and His people, there is this growing praise, Whereas there has been a kind of, if you like, a, a, an up and down movement to, to praise, to lament, back up to praise, back to lament, from light to darkness. By the time you get to the end of the Psalter, it's just repeated trumpet blasts of joy. And so, with 150, it ends here. Not with instruction. Not a lot of instruction here in, in terms of, uh, sort of sort of theology or, or even what we might call sort of uh, live in this way, although, it, although it, is t- it is telling us to live in a certain way. We'll get to that. But not instruction as we're used to finding in the Psalms of, say, what to do with, in this or that situation, with this or that emotion. And also notice that it doesn't end 
with an amen. The idea is that the, 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 the praise keeps going and going forever. What we are given in this psalm is a call to praise God. A call to praise God. And I want to note a few things together with you in this psalm as we walk through it together. First, praise has a location. Praise has a location. Join me in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Okay, sanctuary and mighty heavens. I would not say that this verse uh, teaches that the praise of God has to be located inside a building we call a a sanctuary. I think that would be far beyond what the text is, is giving us. But I will at least note that frequent mention of the location of worship, which we have throughout the Psalter, should invite us to consider that the location of worship does matter perhaps more than we think. It is true that God is not confined to a a single solitary place on earth, that he saw fit to have his people build one anyway should cause us to at least reflect on the value of a place to gather together. This is a call that goes out to people in the sanctuary and to those in the heavenly sanctuary. Even the heavens get called. Now, that should make you kind of stop and think. Because if, if we assume, and I'm fine with assuming this, given what the text tells us, which is not much, but if we assume that this call to the heavenlies is a call to the angelic host, why would they need to get called to worship? Aren't they busy worshiping God all the time? Yes. But also, worship is always, no matter who you are, a response to God's Word. It's why every Sunday we try to stuff the worship service, as it were, with God's words. Worship is always a response to God's call, God's greatness, God's power, His majesty, His judgments, His salvation. All of this given to us in His word, and it happens on earth, and it happens in heaven. So praise has a location, verse 1. Look at verse 2. Praise has a motivation. So praise has a location, it also has a motivation. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Mighty deeds and excellent greatness. In other words, God has done great things. So we sing about them. God Himself is great, and so we sing about Him. There are These are two elements, so, so who God is and what He has done, that motivate quite a lot of praise in the Psalter. I mean, throughout, this is what we keep coming back to. If, if you want an example of this, um, I don't think this is in the presentation, but if you want to turn to Psalm 96, uh, to Psalm 96, and you start to see this pattern that, that is summarized in, in Psalm 150, verse 2, for His mighty deeds and for His greatness. In other words, uh, who He is and what He has done. Now look at Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Bless His name, who He is. Okay. Declare His glory among the nations. Tell of His salvation. That's what He's done. Okay. Next bit speaks of Sorry, I lost my place. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens what he's done. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary, who he is. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, who he is. Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Again, who he is. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. What he's done. The world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. What he has done and one day what he will do. And so you see this pattern present in Psalm 96. Movement back and forth between who God is and what he has done. It is, you might say, a favorite theme of the psalmist. Now, why is this important? Why does this matter? Because so often you and I forget who it is we're dealing with. We forget what sort of God we deal with. That is why we are always returning to his word, to be reminded who he is, because apart from his word, there certainly are other things that reveal God. I mean, you can see God in the glory and beauty of nature. But nature speaks, as it were, with a lisp, not with the, cl- not with the perfect clarity of, of the scriptures. And so we constantly return to the scriptures to make sure that we are not inventing our own ideas about God, which is always our tendency. We forget what sort of God we deal with. A lot of the false teaching that is spread far and wide in our culture today is because people have a version of God in their minds that they have not checked against what he says about himself. And we often forget what he's done. And you know this just in your human relationships. Your mind and heart remember very well the, the hurts you've suffered, the difficulties you've faced, the hardship and the tears you've cried. The good times are, for whatever reason, probably just life in a Genesis 3 world, less clear. Hurts do not take work to remember. Those remain pretty sharp. But blessings do. Blessings take work to remember. Right? That's why we are called to, I mean, even <laughs> this, this, it's, a, uh, it's a cliche that floats, right? Count your blessings, name them one by one, and so on. That, that's because that is something we have to commit ourselves to doing, to cultivate gratitude in our hearts. Right? And I, I, speak, I speak as one who needs this. I speak as one who has to fight for it myself, to be constantly mindful of the ways that God is blessing me. And so praise has, I said first, a location. And then praise has a motivation, who God is and what He's done. Next, praise has a sound. Look at verse 3. Praise has a sound. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. So this this word trumpet is the English translation of the Hebrew word shofar, a, a ram's horn that was blown both in worship and in war, which is very interesting. And over the sacrifice, by the way, the, the, uh, the trumpet would announce the goodness of God as it was, as it was blown over the act of sacrifice uh, to, to, again, remind the people of, uh, of the forgiveness of God, how he had covered their sin. Old Testament scholar James Glasgow writes, the trumpets blown over sacrifice represent the gospel even, Because by the same token, sinners are gathered in 
to hear the proclamation of the forgiveness of Jesus. So the trumpets would be proclaiming the forgiveness of God over the sacrifice in the same way the preaching of the gospel is proclaimed over the sacrifice of the cross. Trumpets announce good tidings. That's the point. Preachers announce good tidings. And then we also see, let's see, trumpet, uh, uh, praise Him with the trumpet sound, praise Him with lute and harp. The lute... um, I don't know if you've seen if you've seen what a lute is, then you already know. All I have to say, it looks remarkably like a guitar. <laughs> I mean, remarkably like a guitar, almost to the point where it's it's kind of weird that we haven't had guitars as part of the worship for longer than we have. A harp, probably a handheld, uh, a simple harp about about yay big, probably of ten strings. Uh, harp of ten strings is referenced a few times in the Old Testament as well. We are, put a pin in tambourine and dance, we're going to come back to it. I promise. In fact, it's probably one of the longer parts of the sermon. But then jump over to strings and pipe, we're still talking about the sound of praise. So instruments that require breath, as well as, uh, you can count the trumpet in there as well. We have a strong range of instruments here, right? And I'm praying that God would bless us, continue to bless us with a wider range of instruments even than what we have today, although that is no small blessing. I'd love to see a trumpet up here someday, or a violin, or a cello. Did, Grayson, didn't you have a banjo? last? Yeah, yeah, Grayson brought a banjo last time. Glory! <laughs> Glory! Thanks for bringing the banjo. Um, now, some of, I want to pause for a minute and, and mention briefly that uh, there are traditions that forbid the use of musical instruments in the worship service. Some of them also are, uh, are exclusive psalm singers, so they only sing the psalms, and they only sing the psalms a cappella. This is actually part of our own Presbyterian tradition. And you might wonder, as you read Psalm 150, how on earth can anybody get away with that? <laughs> right? Look at all these instruments being mentioned. Okay? Um, when, I was in, when I was in Scotland, I was part of a church that for about half the time I was there, um, uh, they had only, only uh, sorry, only sung praise was a cappella, and it was only psalms. But the other half of my time, they had actually made a decision to switch. The Free Church of Scotland did, which is a story I won't trouble you with now. But here, here's the argument if you're curious, just as a sort of good faith measure between brothers and sisters. Um, some who, uh, well, I'm sorry, let me, I've now dug myself a bit of a hole, so let me sort out what I was going to say. There are some who sing a cappella only without instruments, but do not limit themselves to the Psalms. And so if, if you bring Psalm 150 to them, they would say, well, that's the Old Testament and we don't do that anymore. So this sort of sharp dichotomy between old and new, we've talked about that before. Here's why I don't even think that argument works, because in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, God's people are called to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So as we do that together, you think Psalm 150 is going to come out eventually, which unavoidably mentions musical instruments. Some will argue that was for a specific time, as in, as in they would only pull out the instruments at certain times which then you want to ask, okay, so what sort of times? Like, can, can we also then pull them out at certain times in our practice? And they will say no. Um, sometimes the argument is the early church didn't use instruments. They only sung the Psalms a cappella, which, as far as we have records, seems to be true. However, I would imagine that it's hard to bring out the timpani 
when the emperor is trying to kill you. I'd imagine you just don't get around to it. That was a joke. So because, uh, or, or, or perhaps the argument is because the world has used these things, we shouldn't. We should only use things that the Lord himself has given us. I, that sounds really pious, but the world uses language, and here we are preaching. John Calvin says, The psalmist, therefore, in exhorting believers, can you put that one up, Jeremiah? The psalmist, therefore, in exhorting believers to pour forth all their joy in praise of God, enumerates one upon another all the musical instruments which were then in use and reminds them that they ought to be consecrated to the worship of God. To which I say, Amen. Here's my point. What we have in Psalm 150, you know, uh, trumpet and harp and lute and so on, is not an exhaustive list, nor is it a a special list, like these instruments are special, only use these, uh, but it is a representative list of different types of instruments that were, no pun intended, in play at that time. Instrumentation, I would say, implies beauty, implies skill, implies excellence. This was a, another Old Testament pattern that those who played, particularly for the worship of God, knew what they were doing. So you don't just sort of throw anything before God. You want your instruments to make sense as they go together. Um, again, John Calvin, I don't have it on a slide, but he said, you cannot apply yourself too diligently to the praises of God. You cannot apply yourself too, you can't overdo your diligence as we, as we think about praising God together. So I'd say that means we should employ our gifts, talents, and abilities with joyful seriousness. Uh, and this requires, it might even require practice and work and investment. This is why we uh, do the first Wednesday sings together, so that we can practice uh, and increase our skill at this good work that God has set before us. I have a great quote here that I found from Vody Balcom. Some of you guys, some of you guys appreciate Vody Balcom. He said, we come in here, we have our hymnals, and there are these notes here, music notes. Somebody's playing them. Somebody's singing them. How many of us never try to take time to get better at reading those notes, to try to get better at singing those notes, to learn if you're a soprano or an alto or a tenor or a bass, so that when you come, you offer to God in the context of the unity of the brethren the best you can. God is worthy of that. And so, uh, to that I can only say amen. Except I freely admit that when, when Vody said it, it probably sounded a lot more intense and dramatic. So, so praise has a sound, right? It sounds like trumpets and instruments and people singing together. We'll get there. But my next point is praise has a rhythm. Praise has a rhythm. Praise him with tambourine and with dance. Let's talk about that. The word for tambourine here is, in some translations, you'll find timbrel. It was a percussion instrument that looked very much like our tambourine. Some of them were basically hand drums. It was a bit of animal skin stretched over a ring. So they didn't have little bells on it, but it was like it was a hand drum. Uh, And some of them did have little bells on them. Uh, But either way, the purpose was rhythmic. So there are three elements to music you might know. Music, uh, (laughs) melody, harmony, and rhythm. And and they're all here. Melody is what you get when you start uh, with instruments, right? And And you have musical tones. Harmony is what you get when you have more of them, hopefully. And rhythm is what you get when you add percussion, cymbals, and dance. Now this is a tricky one, isn't it? Dancing. (laughs) Really? 
Some commentators have tried to say that the word here for dance could also be a reference to another type of percussion instrument which would fit the context, but to be frank, I don't buy it. Okay? Let me unpack some of the challenges here. What this means, at the very least, is that God means for our bodies to be part of our worship. Okay? It, it might sound like a stretch, okay? but if we're invited into dance, that also that takes into account that we're using our bodies for something. How much more then should we be mindful of other things, like raising hands, kneeling for confession, uh, and so on? But there's this joke about Presbyterians thinking that the only reason we have bodies is so that we have something to carry our brains to church with. Uh, <laughs> so let, let it not be so, right? Let it not be so. There are five considerations I'm going to give you this morning. So, so without doubt, this was the thing I spent the most time on in the sermon because I think it's the thing maybe least talked about, not just in reform circles, but in broader evangelicalism even, because I can tell you it was really, really hard to find good resources on it. But so this is after kind of my reflection, let me share with you what I've learned and kind of take you with me as we walk together on this and think about it together. So five, five principles, five considerations for you. First, that there are approved forms of dancing in the Old Testament that honor God, and there are unapproved forms that dishonor him. Think of the dancing that happened around the golden calf. Okay? That would be an example. So you have approved forms of dancing. Uh, Exodus 15, when Marion leads, uh, uh, leads at least a small group, it could have been the whole, uh, the whole bunch of them, in dancing in celebration after the destruction of Pharaoh. So that's that's the first one. There are approved and unapproved forms of dancing in the Old Testament. Second, there are occasions of both men and women dancing, although it is more common to read of women doing it. I'm not really sure what to do with that. It's it's simply in sheer terms of numbers and probability. That's kind of how it shakes out. There are occasions in the scriptures of both men and women. And and you'll notice I'm I'm not going to too much get into... um, like a lot of the references, I think probably what would be best, best for this is to do a write-up on this kind of after this Sunday and share it with all of you who might be interested. Uh, but for the simple sake of time, I am going to move quickly through this because, well, the time I'm going to spend on it will already spill over <laughs> on the sermon. Uh, but I, I, will, I will share the text with you uh, in, time, in time to come. So it's you have, you have instances of men and women dancing. It is more common, again, the, the uh, most probably easily remembered example is Miriam uh, in Exodus 15. Third, wherever dancing happens in the context of worship, it is almost always, this is very interesting, almost always accompanied by four other things, and here they are. Singing, musical instruments, especially the blowing of trumpets, sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and feasting, okay? So wherever, wherever dancing shows up, not in every single example, because obviously there's not feasting in, uh, in Psalm 150, for example, uh, but, but in almost every place where dancing shows up, these other four elements are there. I note in passing that this greatly resembles the gatherings that happen at the Hasics. Uh, so the Hasek family, that they host these, uh, these gatherings uh, that we've, we've mentioned to all of you before. I think it's the second Saturday of the month. Yeah, second Saturday of the month. They're in Ireland right now. God bless them. Uh, so they're not here to hear me talk about them. But I thought, man, at the Hasek's, there's singing. There's musical instruments, if you count Amir's accordion. 
Uh, there's animal sacrifices if you count that lamb roast. <laughs> and there's always feasting. And I'm not saying you, you should count the lamb roast. That was a joke. But dancing, and, and of course, there's the, the folk dancing in the evenings after all of that. Dancing seems to have been, as it's used in the Old Testament, a unified response of the people after the sacrifice. Okay? So you would have... Uh, you have animal sacrifice in the context of, of like major festival, perhaps, and there would be dancing around the altar of some of the people together. Uh, when I say together, it would be a bit wooden to call it choreographed, but they certainly knew what they were doing. So, I mean, like, there are situations I can think of if, if you have any familiarity with, like, Cajun or Acadian Louisiana, and the, the, the Cajun music kicks on, and everyone starts doing a two-step, right? Not because they worked it out the night before in a choreographed fashion, but because everybody just knows what they're doing. I think we could say the same thing of dancing in the, in the Old Testament Israel context. Um, and perhaps that sort of rejoicing after the sacrifice, after the forgiveness of sin, you might even say it bears some resemblance to our assurance of pardon. The only exception to this seems to be the dance of David, when the ark is returned to Jerusalem, um, which is an, a very interesting case. It would be, I think, beyond the scope of the sermon, but it's, it, it is, curiously, never mentioned again by any biblical author, Old Testament or New Testament, as a model or a standard or even as a warning. Uh, but the dancing seems to be, in most cases, connected to the sacrifice of the altar. Now listen to this part. That dancing seems to be, in most cases, connected to the sacrifice of the altar, has led some to conclude it was a component of the ceremonial sacrifices and thus passes away with them. I'm not sure what you think about that or what to think about it. It must be noted that the New Testament never mentions acts of dancing as part of assembled New Covenant worship. It does mention singing, prayer, reading of Scripture, breaking of bread, kneeling, teaching, and offerings. The only occasion of an act of dancing explicitly mentioned in the New Testament is the dancing of Herodias's daughter before Herod and his guests that ends up with John the Baptist getting his head cut off. Whatever that was, we can probably agree it wasn't worshipful dancing. Okay? Where there can be widespread agreement is that the New Testament doesn't have anything to say about the place of dancing in gathered worship. There's not really any mention of it in anything from the early church fathers on top of that, and while we might excuse the absence of dancing in our worship services as a matter of cultural discomfort, there's really no reason to think that the early church would have been hindered by such sensitivities. Where it gets more difficult then is determining precisely what role, if any, dance should have in our present context. That worship, I've said this before, I'll say it again, where there is and must be widespread agreement is that worship involves our bodies and even the movement of them. We've talked about kneeling, lifting of hands, clapping, and so on. In fact, I told you 149 and 150 are similar. 149 verse 3 says, praise him with the dance or honor him in the dance, depending on your translation. And I do think, for example, that what happens at the Hasics is a shining example of that. Corporate dancing that honors men and women is a lost art. Corporate dancing where we dance with each other rather than at each other. But I am still, if I'm honest, considering how such a united offering to God might look in our context. It means at least movement of the body, which we do. It means that when we worship, 
people should not mistake us for toy soldiers, right? Who are incapable of moving and frankly threatened by the whole idea, (laughs) okay? It means at least movement of the body. It should be in some sense corporate, not saying the whole congregation becomes a ballroom, but neither does one person decide to put on a show for the rest of us. So is a preacher, let me ask you this, is a preacher allowed to say that he's still thinking about something and doesn't have an answer yet? I hope so, because this one still is. (laughs) What I can say confidently is that the call to dance found here, and also in 149, is yet another reminder that what we do with our bodies in worship really matters. And that physical expressions of joy is part of our worship. Okay? That, and by the way, every time dance is mentioned in the Psalter, it's in the context of joy. Okay? Uh, there are funeral dirge dances in the Bible. They just don't show up in the Psalms. Okay? So, so joy and dancing are, are obviously connected together as well. So, there's, there's kind of the exploration of dancing that probably felt a bit like a lecture. Take a deep cleansing breath if you need to, and we're going to get back on the track of Psalm 150. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. So I've told you praise has a sound. I just told you praise has a rhythm. Verse 5, praise has a volume control. <laughs> It is not just symbols, the text says. We get an emphasis of loud, clashing symbols. Our song should have melody and harmony and rhythm. We should sing together. Our voices should be unified. It should be joyful. And brothers and sisters, on more than a few occasions, it should be loud. Now that's not to say there's not a time for quiet reflection, even in music. In fact, some songs demand more quiet reflection. I mean... uh, just as a, a general principle, a psalm of lament where we are crying out because of our sin should not make you sway your hips. Right? Just as a general rule. A psalm of joy should not lull you to sleep. And that one, I think, is one that Presbyterians can talk about pretty, uh, pretty openly and honestly. What I call the dirgification of Christian hymnody, which is taking perfectly glorious hymns and making them sound like funeral dirges. Presbyterians seem to be especially good at this, and I don't know why. <laughs> if you ever investigate original hymn tunes, it will shock you. The melody is the same. Okay? Harmonies are usually the same, but the syncopation is weird in a lot of hymns that you know. Or I should say you think you know because a modern publisher took it and and dirged it up to make it more boring and then put it in a hymnal and that's the only version you've ever known. Many of the old hymn tunes, I don't know how else to say it, they bounced. There was bounce in them. And I can't help but wonder if you find old hymns boring, maybe you don't actually find them boring. They've just been boringified by hymnal publishers or publishers of songbooks who thought you were too dense to learn how to sing something more bouncy. Rant over. This is again I got from Vody Balcom. He said, having a happy melody with a lament or a sad melody with a psalm of joy is like putting an engagement ring in a happy meal box. The container does not suit the contents. So, praise has a sound. And finally, praise has a choir. Look at verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And the closing hallelujah, praise the Lord. 
The psalm is totalizing, right? This has been the whole Psalter. This call that all the nations would sing the praises of God. I've talked about this in the last few sermons that repeated throughout the Psalter are calls to come and worship God. No surprise there, but they're calls to the Gentiles, to all peoples. Uh, remember Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you nations, praise him, all peoples. God is always meant to bring the nations in. So if you have breath, God calls you to use it to praise. And this is the, I mean, it, this sounds so obvious that it sounds almost silly to say it. The point of our worship is that God be praised. That is the heartbeat of our worship. Not that we be entertained, but that God be praised. Although praise often excites us, and yes and amen. But the goal and objective is that God be praised. I recall the story of one pastor who was speaking to a man at the end of a worship service. And uh, the fellow said, you know, pastor, I just didn't feel it today. To which the pastor said, be encouraged, we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> it's important we be clear about that. Right? That, that God is the object of our worship. That He is the one that we will, we will worship. Um, and it, and it, really, it really should sober us. It's a glorious thing to which we are called. And it doesn't mean that... Um, <clears throat> if, if, say, if In saying God is the one we worship, he's the, he's the object of our worship, that doesn't mean that sort of whatever we do doesn't matter. I've already said we, we want to worship God with skill. We want to praise Him. We, we, we want to work hard to produce a sound that's beautiful. But the call here is not that everything with breath... And sounds good all the time, should praise the Lord. But everything with breath should, if you will, use it to praise the Lord. That everything would. And so, praise then has a choir. I said that was my last point, but I, 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 I lied. <laughs> this is actually the last point. Praise is a command. That's, what, that's how it closes, right? Praise the Lord are the closing words of the Psalter. And I, I want to offer to you that this last call, praise the Lord, is really just another way of saying the Great Commission. Right? When the Lord Jesus tells his disciples to, to go out into all the world, or, or if you like, in your going into all the world, right? preach, baptize, teach them all that I've commanded you to do, and so on, that's the, the Great Commission is that we preach and we teach and we share this gospel until everything that has breath is praising God. The problem of sin, therefore, is that we want to glorify ourselves when we are called to praise the Lord. Right? We desire, there's a desire in your flesh and in mine to constantly be the center of attention. And this sin expresses itself in lots of different ways. It's why you make yourself the victim in every argument you've ever had. It feels good to be a martyr. Right? It's, why, <laughs> it's why if you're passing the casserole around, <laughs> you know that each piece is very different, and so you want to get the best piece for yourself. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lonnie. It's why some of you, by nature of your personality, you might, and, and this is a temptation that confronts some people, you love to feel misunderstood. Here's what I mean. Nobody gets me. Nobody understands me. 
Nobody has me figured out. I am far too complex and deep and mysterious. Right? What's happening there is you're trying to be God. Incomprehensibility is an attribute of God. It would be the height of humility, the death of your pride, right? To just say, actually, I'm pretty simple. I'm, I'm really just scared that if people find out I'm ordinary, I won't matter. It's why some of you, when you maybe get into a group of people, you feel the temptation to dominate the conversation. Why? Well, because you want glory. You want to be glorified. So this is, this is part of our flesh. This is part of our sinful condition. It's been this way since the garden when our father Adam reached for the fruit and tried to be a better good than the good that God had made him to be that we, we are glory thieves. And so we have stolen praise from God and, and it falls to us quite simply to repent and to, to then offer Him the praise that is due His name. So do you live for the praises of yourself? Do you live to be affirmed <laughs> and liked and, and satisfied in yourself? Do you reject anything that doesn't give you that? Many people are angry at God because He is clear that He's the only one that gets worship. And you want to be worshipped. There is a God who defines goodness, truth, and beauty, and you don't even get to say what is real apart from Him. And that's the God we've sinned against. The answer is to acknowledge that and repent of our sin and to learn how to praise Him with all the skill we've been given, with all the, the instruments at our disposal, with all the focus and attention our minds can muster in an easily distracted age and when the sermon goes on a little longer than we're used to. Sorry about that. With all the gratitude we can offer for how many are our blessings with all humility we can bear. For by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and by His death on the cross, all our sins are forgiven. Therefore, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for how even in a psalm that, that doesn't have a lot of instruction per se in it like we're used to finding in the psalms, we are still called and commanded here to, to, as it were, praise you with all we have. And indeed, we long for the day when everything that has breath does praise the Lord. And so as we wait for that day with eager expectation, give us faithfulness and hearts that love your gospel so and love to share it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.